Friday the 13th of October, and you're listening to Michigan News from MLive. I'm Patrick Shea. Today we'll hear about several bills being heard by the Michigan legislature this week, from clean energy initiatives to a homeless bill of rights and an incentive for former teachers to come out of retirement. Then, a new $20 million campaign is aimed at getting more folks to move to Michigan. That's all ahead in this episode of Michigan News from MLive. Michigan is facing a teacher shortage, and the state is trying new ways to address it. Jordan Hermony is a politics and culture reporter with MLive. She also covers education, among many other things, and joins us now. Hi, Jordan. Hey, how's it going? Good. So let's start with the problem and then look at what is potentially a short-term solution the state is trying. Is this teacher shortage a sudden thing that's caught schools off guard, or are we seeing the continuation of a long-term trend here? It's definitely a continuation of a long-term trend. Uh, The education sector has been aware of a not just teacher shortage, but this actually is going beyond that. We're starting to see issues with, for instance, uh, bus drivers getting employed at school districts, paraprofessionals, those are individuals who work with students with special needs. um, And, you know, it's starting to percolate into certain kinds of educational positions as well. Um, thinking STEM teachers are, are in high demand. And that was the focal point of a report released earlier this week that deals with, you know, what exactly the breadth and depth of Michigan's educator shortage looks like and how it's really impacting students. Yeah, that brings me right into my next question. What is the impact of this shortage on students in Michigan? And I guess where in the state are those impacts being felt the most? So the impacts are being felt, honestly, everywhere, Um, though to what degree obviously varies district to district. Um, There's been issues with in in certain districts, as I mentioned earlier, the demand for bus drivers, um, not having enough individuals to staff bus routes. So bus routes won't run some days, leading for students to be unable to attend school if their parents can't bring them to school by some means or another. Um, It's leading to students having less trust in their teachers as they don't know if these teachers are going to last the whole school year. In some cases, we have teachers who are filling in for classrooms that might not have a teacher uh, on their professional prep hour, which enables them to sort of prepare for the next half of the day that they are going to be teaching. Um, It leaves them underprepared to help their students. It leaves the students that they are effectively watching over in sort of a limbo where they lack a permanent educator. And then for educators, it's leading to burnout, mental health issues, physical health issues, which is actually prompting some to uh, look at leaving the profession or actually leaving the profession altogether due to their own uh, problems with needing to balance both their own school workload plus potentially another classroom on top of it or classroom sizes that are bigger than what they can you know, responsibly handle. One issue that school districts have pointed to is the poaching of teachers. What does poaching mean in this context? So poaching in this context would mean that if I am a, let's say, a social studies teacher in one district and a nearby district, they are very much so hurting for a social studies teacher. They might contact me directly via email, a phone call, they being the administrators of the nearby district, and they would say, hey, um, you know, we have heard that you're a great social studies teacher how would you like to think about moving over to our district? 
we are willing to pay you potentially fifteen to twenty thousand dollars more than you're currently making if you leave your job and move to a nearby district. Now, all that's really doing, it's not alleviating the teacher shortage at all. Um, it's just moving the problem somewhere else. It's, it's a big enough issue that enough educators felt the need to flag it and say, hey, this poaching is getting out of control, and especially for districts that don't have the fiscal resources to potentially poach in return, as, as you know, hard as that may sound, um, they are left with basically teachers that are just leaving their districts in mass and students that won't have a teacher because that teacher has moved on for, you know, a, a better paying position. Jordan, you wrote a couple stories about the teacher shortage this week, and you've reported that the state is looking for teachers willing to come out of retirement. Tell us more about that. So this has actually been an issue that has been occurring sort of off to the side, tangential to the teacher shortage. Um, And this was prior to, I believe in 2022, a law went into effect that basically said you needed to be retired from a district for nine months um, in order to collect your, you know, retirement benefits and, and, and the like. And you could not come back and teach at a school or coach at a school. And actually that's where most of the fuss was raised was uh, retired educators hoping to come back and potentially coach basketball or softball, football, etc. Um, and finding that they weren't actually able to make any amount of money if they came back um, because of this sort of nine-month nine waiting period. But uh, Governor Gretchen Whitmer this week actually signed into law a bill which would enable retirees to continue to receive their pensions and other retirement benefits like health care while making about $15,000 per school year um, or about $30,000 overall if they time it right, so long as they've received a bona fide termination of empo- employment, which basically means that they have retired in the eyes of the state. And it's really hoping that these individuals, these teachers who have left the profession because they were eligible to retire, uh, will come back and potentially help fill these gaps that school districts are experiencing, whether that is um, in a coaching position or in a full-time teaching position or even potentially as a substitute teacher, which is another area where Michigan schools are actually very much so hurting for bodies in these positions. You can learn more about this new law allowing retired teachers to return to Michigan classrooms while keeping their pensions by reading Jordan Hermony's story on MLive.com. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Last week, I spoke with climate reporter Sherry McWhorter about Michigan's renewable energy goals. We had an update on the state's progress, and today we'll hear about a new effort to continue that progress on a neighborhood scale. A bill introduced to the House Natural Resource Committee would stop homeowners associations from banning a long list of energy-efficient upgrades. Sherry McWhorter is back again to tell us more. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Patrick. Nice to talk with you again. So let's get right to it. House Bill 5028. What would it do and who's behind it? Well, the, uh, the Democrats who control the state legislature are working on several clean energy related bills, and this one is among the most recent. It would establish a new law here in Michigan called the Homeowners Energy Policy Act. That is, should it be approved in both houses and signed into law by the governor. Uh, Now, under this legislation, any homeowners association bylaws that block what amounts to a laundry list of energy efficiency measures would be completely invalidated, just thrown right out. We're talking about rules against rooftop solar panels 
EV chargers and home garages, efficient windows, and even rain barrels and clotheslines. HOAs could no longer block any of those things and more if this becomes state law. Interesting. Again, HOAs as in homeowners associations. Now, is this currently an issue among those associations? Like, is there anywhere in Michigan where rooftop solar is banned? Or is this bill more of a preventative measure to try and stop that from happening in the future? In fact, uh, Representative Jen Hill, who is a Democrat from Marquette, she asked that very question in the committee hearing. And it seems there are places in Michigan where homeowners associations outright ban rooftop solar for aesthetic reasons. The multiple bill sponsors on this measure argue we are in a dual climate and energy crisis and single-family homeowners should not be prohibited from making updates to their homes to save energy and, in turn, money. And has there been any pushback on this bill, or are most state representatives on board? Well, during the committee hearing last week when, when lawmakers discussed this legislation, there was at least one representative who questioned the idea with a, a great deal of concern. Uh, Rep. Josh Shriver, uh, a Republican from Oxford, said he is president of his own neighborhood HOA, and he balked at the notion of stripping away any controls from these neighborhood boards. He questioned why those who wanted to change restrictions in their own HOA didn't you know, lobby each of those individual boards or even try to overthrow current leadership to get their own way. But uh, Representative Rajiv Puri, uh, a Democratic bill sponsor from Canton, said they, they tried that, but requests for solar panels or even laundry lines always seem to fall on deaf ears. Hmm. So they would argue that this bill is, is the way to go for making sure that these energy efficiency upgrades are allowed in, in all neighborhoods in the state. So this bill is all about making sure folks can install new equipment to tap into renewable energy. But the state's energy transition will also rely on existing infrastructure, some of it that's been running for more than a century. Sherry, you took a trip to a historic hydroelectric plant and wrote a story about that as well. I did. I uh, recently visited the St. Mary's Falls Hydropower Plant in Sault Ste. Marie, which is owned by Cloverland Electric Cooperative. It is an amazing structure, 120 years old, beautiful Romanesque architecture, incredible mechanics, able to generate an average of 30 megawatts of electricity year-round, and all without emitting any greenhouse gas at all. Uh, a co-op official there called it a dispatchable form of renewable energy, and it really is. With wind and solar, weather conditions can impact how much power can be generated on a given day. But not with hydropower facilities like that one. That water is always going to be flowing out of Lake Superior and into the St. Mary's River. That carbon-free power is always right there. You can see pictures of that historic hydro plant in Michigan's oldest city, Sault Ste. Marie, by reading Sherry's story on our website, MLive.com. Sherry McWhorter is a climate reporter covering the old and new when it comes to renewable energy in Michigan. Sherry, thanks for joining us again this week. Oh, so happy to be here. Nice to talk. And now to Lansing, where Michigan lawmakers are taking the first steps on a major piece of civil rights legislation. The so-called Homeless Bill of Rights is supported by housing advocates who held a demonstration at the Capitol last month, which we covered here on the show. Ben Orner reports on the Michigan legislature for MLive in Lansing, 
and joins us now. Hi, Ben. Hey, Patrick. So there's a lot to unpack in this piece of legislation, but let's start with what its name suggests. What kind of guarantees would this bill give to Michigan's unhoused residents? So its sponsor, Representative Emily Devendorf, a Democrat from Lansing, she calls this uh, a, quote, bare minimum of uh, rights for homeless folks, uh, basically establishing what she calls a measure of humanity for people uh, without housing. Um, Essentially, it ensures, regardless of someone's housing status, that they have equal access to public services, uh, which uh, includes rights to um, personal property, emergency medical care, also the right to move freely in, in public spaces. And if the bill is passed, what kind of recourse would someone have if they were denied any of these rights because of their housing status? Uh, In short, they would have um, the ability to sue. Um, Let's say, for example, um, you know, a a police tries to maybe arrest uh, someone who's homeless um, when they're just going about their day in a public space, not um, committing any crime. They would uh, be able to sue um, if someone uh, stole a homeless person's um, backpack or something, something of their property, um, they'd be able to to sue. And uh, other points of this uh, Bill of Rights include um, the the right to equal treatment by state and municipal agencies, that you could get a state ID card uh, and... um, Also, homeless youth uh, would be able to be enrolled in schools um, easily and effectively. Could you give us a broad picture of the current problem with homelessness that we're seeing in Michigan? I guess what prompted the need for this bill, according to lawmakers? So this bill is part of a broad effort uh, this fall in the legislature by Democrats to uh, tackle homelessness and these high rents that uh, Michigan has been seeing and, and Places have seen across the country. As as for the problem of homelessness, um, there's a uh, report by the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Uh, last year, more than 8,000 people were homeless in this state on any given night. Uh, and then the state had a uh, study in 2021 that looked at the entire year and found that um, more than 30,000 different people experienced homelessness in this state in all of 2021. So, Ben, the problem of homelessness is sort of in the headline of this bill. But as you mentioned, it's part of a broader effort to address issues around housing. What are some of the other bills receiving hearings right now? Yeah, so at the same time that this uh, homeless rights bill got heard, um, that same committee in the House uh, heard two other things. Um, One bill would require uh, landlords to refund application fees for tenants whose applications uh, were denied. Uh, That's something that... uh, you don't see very often. And then uh, another one is um, a a bigger bill that would generally prevent landlords from considering a rental applicant's criminal record. Um, That means arrests, convictions as an adult or juvenile. Um, And that's basically not, not if you were like, this isn't aimed for people who maybe were convicted of a murder or uh, a heinous sexual crime. It's basically like, if I shoplifted 10 years ago and that's on my record, then when I apply for uh, rental housing, the, the, you know, the, the owner of that property wouldn't be able to uh, consider that minor offense from years ago. They would only have to consider, you know, am I good to pay rent every month? MLive's Ben Orner on House Bill 4919, or the Homeless Bill of Rights, 
which has been receiving its first hearings in the Capitol. Ben, thanks for your time. Thanks, Patrick. You can in Michigan. That's the slogan of a new national campaign that state leaders unveiled on Tuesday. They hope it will boost Michigan's stagnating population and attract job seekers. Rose White is an economics reporter with MLive and has a story up on our website about this rebrand of sorts. Hi, Rose. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Sure. So, Rose, you've described this in your story as a national campaign. What exactly does that look like? Where will these move to Michigan promotions be showing up and who's the target audience? Yeah, so Michigan, it's a $20 million campaign that Michigan is putting these TV, radio, print, social media ads trying to pitch Michigan as this destination for job seekers. So they're targeting markets um, in some of our border states in the Midwest, um, and then major cities like New York, San Francisco, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, Austin, a lot of these cities that there's a big density of tech talent. um, And so Michigan's trying to boost its tech workforce. It's trying to boost its highly skilled manufacturing workforce and also add to our um, healthcare industries. So they're really trying to target some of these highly skilled workers to try to uh, make this an economic development tool. So let's talk about the slogan itself, You Can in Michigan. What's the idea behind that? You can what? Yeah, I think the idea behind that is they're they're targeting sort of you can find a job in Michigan, you can have fun in Michigan. So the campaign is not just about um, targeting job seekers. It's also saying if you live here, you'll also have access to all of these outdoor amenities and all of these great cities in Michigan. So they're really trying to pitch Michigan as a destination for people um, who maybe don't want to give up some of their exciting lifestyles in a city like Atlanta or, you know, other other areas. They're really trying to position Michigan as a great place to live. Now, is this a sort of pivot from the the pure Michigan campaign? Like, are we going to need to get a new slogan on our license plates and, and stuff? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Michigan has sort of a three-pronged marketing approach. So Pure Michigan is one of those prongs, and that one is focused specifically on tourism. Um, And so what's interesting is that campaign actually had its budget slashed this year, um, or it will be slashed going into the next year, while this campaign is getting a huge influx of cash. And so this one is focused a lot more on economic development um, and trying to boost our workforce whereas Pure Michigan is focused on some of the tourism and destinations that people can visit. You've reported that this campaign is also touting Michigan as one of the most affordable states. But earlier in this very episode, we heard about some bills in Lansing trying to tackle the big issue of affordable housing. That suggests, you know, that maybe we're not there yet. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, Rose. What do you think of this campaign's claim of affordability in Michigan? Yeah, so the the website paired with the campaign is this big website that's a career portal and has all this information for for people who are interested in choosing Michigan as a place to live. And one of the things on that um, is a cost of living calculator. So you can type in what your salary is, where you live, and it'll tell you how far, how far your dollar will stretch in Michigan. Um, so a big part of the campaign is that Michigan 
is more affordable than a city like New York or San Francisco. But that said, I think, as you mentioned, we already do have affordability issues here. And we we do hear a lot from renters and homeowners just about how things like housing costs keep going up and it's getting harder and harder for people to stretch those dollars. So we don't really know kind of what the impact of this campaign will be. I think critics could point out that this could worsen some of our affordability issues if we get a big um, influx of people moving here, but a lot of that is still up in the air. Um, And I think it's it's a valid point that people here are already struggling with affordability, but the bottom line in the state's perspective is Michigan is still more affordable than a lot of these other major cities. Now, you mentioned the website affiliated with this campaign. It's themichiganlife.org. And you mentioned there's a cost calculator there that kind of shows, you know, for someone who lives in a city like Chicago or Atlanta, this is how far your dollar would go in a Michigan city, I guess. And on that note, there's a quiz you can take there that tells you which Michigan city is a good fit for you. And Rose, you're, you've are you lived in Grand Rapids your, your whole life. Is that right? Yep. <laughs> and you took this quiz. So that'll be interesting to see where uh, the michiganlife.org thinks you should live in the state. What what were your results like? And tell us a bit about the quiz, maybe. Yeah, so I ended up getting Kalamazoo, um, which, you know, I'm a lifelong Grand Rapidian. So that was a surprise. I felt like I geared my answers towards living in Grand Rapids. Um, but they ask things like, what's, do you want to live somewhere rustic, rural, suburban, urban? Um, what What's your dream region? Is it one that has outdoor amenities? Or is it one that has like a busy nightlife? Um, and it just and it asks you what your favorite outdoor activity is. So it kind of puts all these things together and tells people where the best place to live would be. So you're moving to Kalamazoo then? Uh, no, I will be staying in Grand Rapids. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Rose White is an economics reporter based for now in Grand Rapids. Uh, thanks for joining us, Rose. Thanks, Patrick. Before we wrap up today, some quick sports news. The Michigan Wolverines are 6-0 and will host the Indiana Hoosiers this Saturday at the Big House. That's a noon kickoff on Fox. And the Spartans are headed to New Jersey to face Rutgers in what's really a must-win game if there's any hope of any bowl game at the end of Michigan State's season. That game's also Saturday at noon on the Big Ten Network. And on Sunday, the Detroit Lions will be in sunny Florida playing the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Both teams are top of their division, so the game could have implications for playoff seeding, the way things are going. Kickoffs at 4.25 p.m. on Fox. Remember, you can get the latest on all three of those teams by subscribing to MLive's sports podcasts, The Spartan Confidential, The Wolverine Confidential, and The Dungeon of Doom, a Detroit Lions podcast. But it's not all football anymore. Red Wings hockey is officially underway, too. The Wings lost their season opener to the New Jersey Devils in a close game on Thursday night, scoreless after the first period, but a final score of 4-3. Next up is the home opener against the Tampa Bay Lightning, and I'm just now realizing that's two Detroit versus Tampa matchups this weekend, the Lions and the Wings. Interesting. Anyways, the puck drops 7pm at the Little Caesars Arena on Saturday night, streaming on ESPN+. That's all for this week. Thanks as always for listening, and have a great weekend.